If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of Jude. And if you happen to grab one of our guest Bibles on the way in, uh, we'll be on page 988. Jude is the second to last book of the Bible. It comes right before the book of Revelation. And, um, and just a quick note, if you don't own a Bible or if you don't own one in the translation that I'll be reading from, that's the New Living Translation, uh, the guest Bibles in the back are uh, there for you. You're welcome to, to borrow one or keep one. If you would like to take one home, you're, you're more than welcome to do that. We have plenty to share. We've been spending our time here in the book of Jude the last couple of weeks, and I know for our guests it's a little bit of a challenge when you are kind of coming into a, a sermon series that's sort of midstream. Um, but hopefully I can get you caught up enough to where you won't feel at all uh, lost or behind here this morning. We've, uh, we've only made it three and a half verses into the book anyway, so it's not like you know, you've missed a whole bunch of, of what Jude has written. Uh, we've been sort of picking our way through the, the first couple of verses here and taking our time, and, and my hope is to finish off, uh, well, not the whole book, but at least verse four here this morning. That's my hope here today. If we have time, we'll actually get to the end of verse four. Uh, Jude has been issuing here, right from the onset, a strong exhortation, and it's found in verse 3. And he says, all of you, now yes to the church or churches that he's writing this letter to, all of you, but also by extension, all of you, church, Christians, all of you Christian people defend the faith, those essentials those things that are non-negotiable for us as believers in God, those things that pertain to your salvation, those essential things. Why? Why, Jude? Why is, is there a need to defend the faith? Well, he answers the why at the beginning of verse 4, and he says, essentially, false shepherds, false teachers have wormed and slithered their way into, into your churches. They've slithered their way all the way to the pulpit even. They've put themselves in positions of leadership, positions of influence. They are slowly and methodically and intentionally twisting and perverting the truth of God's word that they might lead people astray. And this, by the way, is a real source of genuine concern for any true shepherd of God's flock. That's that's a, a, a primary concern, perhaps the concern, on the hearts of a, of a pastor or a church Leader, Nothing can weaken and damage a church more than this, than people who, who secretly and intentionally twist the truth of God's word. Last week, we concluded the message with the statement that the greatest danger to the church in every time and in every place in the world is not persecution of the faith from without, but perversion of the faith from within. And so that brings us to this morning to the million-dollar question that I know everyone's just been aching to get to. What were they actually teaching? What has Jude so bent out of shape? What has got his, him ruffled up? Why is he so concerned? And why did he, you know, he was originally setting out to write one kind of letter to these churches. Why did he change and write this letter to the churches? And the answer there can be found in verse 4. But I want, to, I want to read this morning from back in verse 1. So we're going to read verses 1 to 4 with the emphasis on the second half of verse 4. Jude, verse 1. This letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. I am writing to all who have been called by God the Father, who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more mercy, peace, 
and love. Dear friends, I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share. But now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. Verse 4, I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches. And here's what they're saying. Saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago. For they have denied our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. When I was growing up, uh, I grew up in church. My parents always took us to church from the time I was a, a child, a baby even. And growing up in the church in the 80s and on into the 90s as a preteen and then as a teenager, I was born in 1980, so I'm a, I'm a good, I'm a Reagan baby. I'm a, I'm a zenial. I'm caught between uh, the, the two, the gen, what, gen X and the millennials. So I'm kind of caught somewhere in between there. Uh, but so my, my childhood, I think of you know, 80s and 90s in particular. And growing up during that time in the church, I became familiar with a term um, that I'm sure all of you at some level or in some form or fashion have heard and are at least vaguely familiar with, and it is the term seeker-sensitive church. Now, if you have never heard that term before, I'm going to try to define it for you. It, It finds its origins all the way back in the 60s, believe it or not, the 1960s. And it's this idea that by using research and conducting surveys and analyzing statistics, we can determine what will draw the seeker into church. So it's, it's how can we reach you know, the non-believer in a way that kind of connects to where they are. And so what seeker-sensitive churches were doing in the 80s and the 90s when I was coming up in the church is they were designing their worship services and their programs around the quote-unquote seeker. And they did that oftentimes by removing barriers, removing obstacles to the non-believers, such as things like preaching on difficult topics like sin and hell. We don't talk about those things here because we don't want to be a barrier to the outsider the one who might be seeking God and would otherwise come in except you're preaching on those very difficult topics. So we remove the preaching on sin, remove the preaching on hell. We also remove any sort of, any uh, thing that would offend. And so things like crosses were removed from sanctuaries of Christian churches because the cross is an offense. And by the way, the scriptures say the same thing. That's not, that's not new information. The cross is always offended. Um, But the seeker sensitive movement oftentimes um, and, it's, and it's, I think, well-intentioned efforts to bring in the lost and to bring in the unsaved, to bring in the outsider, was purging its churches of anything that might stand in the way of that. Now, I think at its core, this movement meant well. All right, so I'm not up here to bash seeker-sensitive people. Um, and there's a lot of good things to take from this movement and things that, uh, that we should listen to and, and incorporate even if, if we're being wise. But There is a fatal flaw. Well, there's actually a number of them, but the one I want to hone in on this morning is is this. There's a a fatal flaw to the premise of this church growth movement, and it is this. The scriptures teach that no man or woman in their natural sort of sinful default state as as a human being that is actually seeking God. 
The, the idea of a seeker is a flawed idea to begin with. Now, you might say, well, Pastor Sean, I know my Bible, and back in Acts chapter 17, when Paul was, you know, debating and dialoguing with, with the people of Athens, he did point out that God is providentially working in the world today, that the nations might, as it says in verse 27, seek after him and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. I agree. Paul does say that, that God is providentially working in the world, that that might be the case. But Psalms 50, uh, 14 and 53, and Paul himself elsewhere in Romans chapter 3 says this, there is no one who is righteous, there is no one who is truly wise, and no one is actually seeking God. So even though God is in the world to providentially produce evidence and, and, and he's working in the nations that they might come to him, the reality is, no one actually is, for all have turned away. Man in his natural state is not seeking God. Man in his natural state is, is rebelling against God and resisting God. So you might say, well, what do you say about those who appear to be genuinely seeking? And I would point you to uh, the great Thomas Aquinas, that, that master of, of doctrine and theology and philosophy from the medieval period, back in the 13th century, all the way back there, if you were to count on one hand the great pillars of, of the Western church throughout the entirety of church history, Aquinas is right there on that list. If you've never heard of him, I, I implore you to at least become somewhat acquainted with him. Become acquainted with Aquinas. That sounds like a Sunday school class. I don't know. What do you think, Richard? We might, we might put something like that into place one day. But Aquinas said this, with regard to the question of, well, what about the people that I see in the world that appear to be genuinely seeking God? He says this, what you're actually observing is people seeking things that only God can provide. Like what? Well, how about release from guilt? That, that inward feeling that people have when they know that they, uh, that they do not measure up. They know in their hearts that they have violated some type of law or morality or something, even if it's their own law and morality, they know they violated it, that they're not perfect, that they have in some form or fashion come up short and there's that feeling of guilt and they're looking for the release of that feeling of guilt. People are looking for peace. People are looking for meaning in their life. People are looking for significance. They're looking for hope. The natural tendency of sinful man is to seek the benefits that only God can provide, all while resisting him with all of their might. It's an interesting dichotomy, isn't it? And such is the dichotomy of sinful humanity. We want the things of God, but not God himself. And because of this, it's possible for someone to come and stand in a, a position of influence such as the one that I occupy and draw a crowd and generate a following when the blessings of God are offered divorced from his person and his rule. Come get the things. You don't have to, you don't have to get him, <laughs> but you can get the things. Listen, that's, that, that's the the essence of a lot of preaching going on in churches today. It's, it's, it's a come and get the stuff, but reject its source. And I think, at some level, this forms a flaw to the seeker-sensitive movement. 
Because it is catering to this sinful self-focus of the non-believer whose only real desire is for what God can give and not God himself. Now, I, I would admit that my critique of the seeker-sensitive movement is a vast oversimplification. Um, it, is, it is almost an unfair blanket statement about an entire movement that otherwise has some very positive things to it. So, so hear me, I, I, I'm not intending to hurt anybody or un, be unfair to anybody, but I hope you hear where I'm coming from on this particular point. And I bring it up because I think at some level, Jude is addressing this problem in his letter, as I think you'll see here in just a moment. His concern and his battle is not over those, you know, very surface level, superficial things that all too many churches are caught up in, right? He's not writing his letter, you know, to to address, you know, their worship styles. I hate, and I will say the word hate because it is the only word that fits how I feel towards it. I hate the worship wars thing. Oh my goodness, can you believe that churches over the last however many, 20, 30 years have fought and divided and divided and divided over the style of, wor- of, of music in their churches? It's, it is an abomination to, to the church and, and a reproach to the name of Christ that people have fought and divided over something like that. Jude isn't concerned with worship wars. Jude is not, and by the way, we're going to talk about worship wars here in a few weeks in Lent. So if you want to, if you want to come back for that, then you're invited for that. He's not, but he's, that's not what he's worried about. He's not worried about their worship style. He's not worried about their liturgies. He's not worried about, you know, the furniture and how it is arranged and what color it is and whose name is on the back of it. He's not concerned with those things. He's not even concerned about how they spend their money, although that's a very important issue, how a church is spending its money. Now, Jude is fighting for the very heart and soul of the faith. What he calls here in verse 4, God's marvelous grace, which, by the way, is shorthand for the very gospel itself, the good news, the essential message of Jesus Christ, which he claims is being perverted and twisted in two connected ways. And that's what we're going to look at right now. Number one, it was being perverted ethically, ethically in terms of behavior. Verse 4, They say, these false shepherds, these false teachers, say that God's marvelous grace, the gospel, allows us to live immoral lives. Now, the English Standard Version renders this verse a little differently and perhaps a little more literally by by saying this. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And that Greek word for sensuality is sort of a uh, an, an all-encompassing word that can cover a whole range of, of sexual permissiveness and debauchery and excessive indulgence and s- sensual pleasures. It's, it's not just a particular type of sexual immorality. It's sort of an, an umbrella term for all of these ways that people view the gospel as a license to indulge in whatever satisfies them. One Greek di- dictionary refers to the, defines this word as Violent spite, which rejects restraint. Meaning, I resent the idea that I can't indulge in whatever satisfies me. Jude is accusing the false teachers of basically saying, because of God's grace, not just in, not in spite of God's grace, but because of God's grace. You see the twist? Because of his grace, you are free to engage 
in whatever licentious behavior you want. You are free to sin today based upon forgiveness tomorrow. Jude says, that is a perversion of the essential gospel. The heart and soul of the faith. You can't just say yes to all the benefits of Jesus and yet never change the behavior of your life. But that's what they're preaching. And it's an an affront to God. It's an abomination for a Christian leader to stand in a position of influence and say that. Unless, of course, your goal is just to build a gigantic following, I guess. And there's no shortage of big churches, and this is not an indictment against big churches, but there's no shortage of them out there that have gotten big for this very reason. There's nothing more seeker-friendly than that, is there? Come get something. Come, come and receive a thing. Come and, and, and get blessed here. Come and, and take something for yourself. It's all about you. Don't worry about it resulting in or requiring any meaningful change in your life. It doesn't matter. That's not what matters. It's not what God, God is love. He wants to give you things, but he doesn't expect anything of you. And this is what Dick Lucas, who is a, um, a pastor and a preacher and a scholar who I admire, whose um, commentary from Jude on Jude and his sermons on Jude have, have really been very helpful to me in my times of preparation. He calls this a decaffeinated Christianity that allows you to sleep peacefully at night thinking you can live exactly as you did before Jesus and still be granted access to heaven. Oh man, that cuts right to the core, doesn't it? This mentality in churches and in Christians that how I live, my ethics don't ultimately matter. That I can, I can sin I can have the same attitudes, the same behaviors, the same lifestyle, the, the, the things that used to characterize my life before Christ, the very things he died to free me from. I can persist in those things today. And it's not only permissible, it's normative. It is the norm of the Christian life to, to persist in sin. And I can go to bed and sleep peacefully at night because God is love. Listen, that, that is Judas saying no. No, the perversion of the, of the essence of the gospel is saying that you can, because of God's grace, continue to live immoral lives. Now listen, I want everyone to hear me because anytime you talk about these things, you have to qualify what you're saying so people don't misunderstand you. God absolutely welcomes sinful people back to himself as they are. Please hear me. This is not a situation where, you know, I'm, I'm invited to some really important gathering and until I, until I get myself cleaned up and I shave and I find the right clothing and get myself prepared, 
Only then will I be permitted in. Now listen, Jesus does talk about a, a wedding banquet where you have to be dressed the right way to attend. And what he's, but what he's talking about is the only way to get to heaven is to, is to wear the clothes that he provides. That's what he's talking about. But listen, Jesus is offering the clothes to the ones who need it. You don't have to produce them yourself. You don't have to clean yourself. You don't have to make yourself right. You don't have to fix all the problems before he accepts you. Because by the way, you are powerless to do those things. That's the problem of sin. You lack the ability and the power and even the desire to, to make yourself right in the eyes of God. You cannot do it. And so he says, okay, come to me, come to me as you are. I'm inviting you to myself. And you can only come to him in the power that he enables and on the basis of what Christ has done. Yes, no one is seeking God on their own. No one is seeking God out of their own you know, natural sort of humanity, their default condition. Our condition is that we want the things of God, but we don't want God. And God knows that, but here's the deal. Even though you may not in your natural state have ever sought God, God has always been seeking after you. like a heat-seeking missile shot from an F-22 at some stinking blimp. And whatever else they're shooting down up in the Yukon, God help us, what is going on up there? Anyway, he is laser-focused on the soul of man. And he's been seeking after you, and he is seeking after you, even though you've spent your whole life, perhaps, turning your face away from him. Every moment of your life, God has been seeking you out to awaken you to his love for you and of your need for him. Even now, I know he's tugging at the hearts of someone. Someone in here. Perhaps you've been denying God, truth, the Bible, Christianity, Jesus, your whole life. And yet you, you feel the tug in your heart. That's not me. That's not the pastor. That's not the message. That's the Lord. He's standing at the door. He's knocking. In the exact same verse that I quoted a few moments ago, where Paul is talking to, to the Athenians, and he's talking about how God is providentially working in the world that he might draw humanity back to himself, that we might turn and seek him in some form or fashion. In the exact same verse, he says, he's not far from any one of us. You might feel like, an, as far as the east is from the west, you might far, feel that far away from God. He might be as distant as the, mo the most remote region in this giant universe that we occupy. But listen, he's closer than you think. He's standing at the door of your life, beckoning you to let him in, to receive him. Indeed, Romans 5.8, the apostle declares that God has already shown his great love for the world by sending Christ to die when? After we made everything right, 
after we got it all sorted out, cleaned ourselves up, atoned for all the bad things we've done, you know, made, you know, fixed all the problems in our lives? No. Is it after we turn to him? After we put our faith in, in God? Is it then that he showed his great love for us? Oh, no. No, God showed his great love for the world while we were still sinners. Don't miss that. That his love for you precedes your faith. His, his expression of the, the length he's willing to go to bring you back to himself precedes your awareness of it. He's always been pursuing you. He has always loved you. And he will never stop pursuing you. He's done everything it takes for sinners to be reconciled. And he is on the hunt for men and women who will respond to his initiative to open the doors of their hearts to him, to turn back to him and be saved. But listen, that was my qualification of what Jude is saying. <laughs> listen, all that said, Paul says in uh, Romans chapter uh, five, absolutely. But just 14 verses later in Paul's letter to the Romans, the beginning of chapter six, in the first verse, he asks an all-important rhetorical question of the very people who have been recipients of the free gift of God's grace and love. And he says this, should we then keep on sinning that we might have more and more of his grace? In other words, should we persist in the very attitudes and behaviors that once defined our lives lived in rebellion to God? Should our lives remain unchanged by the free gift of life and forgiveness that Jesus himself died to secure? Dare we ever presume upon it as a license to do whatever we want with our lives? To this, Paul responds in the absolute most emphatic of ways that he possibly could, certainly not. How dare you even think that way? Yes, Jesus comes to us as we are. God accepts us as we are, but he doesn't want to leave us as we were. In the words of the great Dietrich Bonhoeffer, there is no such thing as cheap grace, which he defines as the preaching of forgiveness without the requiring of repentance. The preaching of forgiveness without the requiring of repentance. Baptism without discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is a grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Christ. Yes, grace is freely offered, but it does not come without a price. A price to God, it cost the Father his one and only Son, but also a cost to us. Because Jesus says, I, you're free to receive it. Now take up your cross and follow me. They were perverting the grace of God into sensuality. <clears throat> Is this not what we see all around us today in the Western church? <laughs> a perversion of the grace of God into sensuality? I mean, just take as one example. It's not the only example. 
It's debatable whether it is the greatest example, but it is definitely an example on all of our minds and hearts. Take the example of the Western church's nearly wholesale capitulation to and even championing, championing of the secular views regarding sexuality and human uh, uh, gender ideology. The way the church has just gobbled this, this up and is regurgitating it out. And by the way, it's, it's not an ideology. It is a religion. Don't be mistaken. It is absolutely a religion. It is one that is set up in direct opposition to the very designs of the creator himself. The creator who has hardwired his image into our bodies, into our sexuality, into our personhood, into our relationships, that you and I might reflect him in the world and come to know him in the world and share and spread his glory through the world. But in our society today, nothing can get you mocked, Nothing can get you attacked. Nothing can get you canceled more quickly or to a greater extent than to stand for the biblical view of life and sexuality and marriage and family. Nothing. And we are seeing many abandon the biblical view of these things for fear of the wrath of the woke mob. And for many churches and even whole denominations, the clear teachings of the scriptures have been subverted by a false gospel, an ethical rebellion, which says God is love. It doesn't matter how you live. And Jude says, oh, you have perverted the very gospel itself. But every ethical rebellion is preceded by a theological rebellion. And that's the second part of what Jude has to say. I told you they're connected. There's two problems with these false teachers, and they're not disconnected. The first is the ethical rebellion, that you can live however you want because of God's grace. But that flows from a, a deeper, more important theological rebellion. Look again at verse 4. They say God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. Why? Because they have denied our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And there it is right there. There it is. Who's the Lord? Who's the Lord? Who has the ultimate say? Who, whose word do you turn to when, when trying to decide right from wrong, good from evil, True or not true? Is it Christ or not? Is it God's word? The Old and New Testaments that Jesus himself authorized? Is it authoritative or not? That is the issue in every one of these discussions. In every one of these debates. In every one of these doctrinal questions, these moral questions, these ethical questions... It comes back to this fundamental issue, who is Lord, whose word is authoritative. And by the way, this is not a new issue. I know we're living in what seems like unprecedented times. I know that the culture is, <laughs> it seems to be spiraling rapidly out of control in a lot of different ways. And we're kind of, you know, we're kind of disoriented by it. It seems to be happening so fast, and it all seems so new and different, and we don't know what tomorrow holds. But, but listen to me. This is not a new issue. It's not even an ancient issue. Friends, it is the issue. 
Go all the way back to the very beginning. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Go back to the very first words in the scriptures uttered by the serpent. What were they? Do you remember? Did God really say that? Did he really mean what he said? Can he really be trusted? Is that is what he says? Is it really true? Friends, there is there is nothing new under the sun. <laughs> the issues in our culture and in our day are as old as time itself. And the Church of Jesus Christ, in every age, and in every corner of the world that has ever had any ethical or doctrinal problem can be sure that you can trace the roots of that back to a theological problem. Who is Lord? And what does he say? It's that simple. You can take all your philosophy, all your science, all your psychology, your sociology, your reason, you can take all those things and and the church should be aware of all those things and we should not be opposed to those things, you know, as if there's nothing to be gained from those things. But at the end of the day, what it really comes down to for me and for you is who is Lord? And it's not what the government tells you. It's not what your politicians tell you. It's not what your, even what your pastor tells you. What does the Lord tell you? You know, there are two things happening right now as we speak that you may or may not be aware of. And I want to bring them to your attention as I try to wrap this up here in the next few moments. Number one, the Church of England is currently weighing whether or not they want to begin using general neutral terms to refer to God. The Church of England. By the way, we can trace our roots to the Church of England. I don't know if you knew that or not. The, the, the founder of Methodism was John Wesley, an Oxford scholar and Anglican minister. The Church of England is considering whether or not to embrace gender-neutral gender terms when referring to God. You know what's ironic to me about this movement? It's not new. This type of thing's been going on for a while. The thing that strikes me most ironic about it and makes me laugh is that the very people who demand that you refer to them by their preferred pronouns are the ones who deny God the same luxury. Has God not already disclosed to us his preferred pronouns? (laughs) I mean, the references to God in the scriptures, to, to he, him, to father, son, that is not due to some, you know, oppressive patriarchy. It's because of revelation. Those are the very categories that that God himself has revealed to us about himself. And we accept them not on the basis of our preferences, but on the basis of his sovereignty. God determines who he is. We don't get to determine that. So that's going on on one hand. Also going on right now as we speak is 
Asbury University is in the midst of a spontaneous revival that began four days ago after a chapel service. A standard, it wasn't a planned thing, it wasn't scripted. They had a run of the mill chapel service in the middle of a term with you know, midterms coming up. Maybe that's why it broke out because there's midterms coming. I don't know. <laughs> but a few students just hung around after the service because they wanted to pray and continue to worship the Lord. And four days later, they haven't quit. And if you want to see something special, go on to Facebook and just search Asbury University and look at the pictures. Hughes Auditorium is packed. People don't want to leave. And other people who are hearing about this are coming from miles around. Hundreds of people, thousands of people. And so what you have is one group who's essentially saying, you know, God, we reject what you have revealed about yourself. Or at least we're considering rejecting it. We want to rewrite your words to fit our perspective, to fit our agenda, to agree with our wisdom. In other words, we want your benefits, but without your person. But then we have another group who's saying, God, would you come? You, you yourself, would you come and be in our midst? Would you have your way among us? Would you speak through your word? Would you inhabit the praise of your people? Will you come and have your way with my life and not the other way around? And people are flocking to Nowhere, Kentucky, otherwise known as Wilmore. But no, the real name is Nowhere, Kentucky. It's on the town charter, I promise you. They're going to Nowhere, Kentucky to experience a genuine touch, to experience the genuine presence of God. Man, I, you cannot think, I cannot think of two more widely opposed things happening in the world right now than that. And as I pointed out last week from Galatians chapter one, to turn from the scriptures is to turn from God. God himself. If you pick and choose what you want and what you don't want, if you twist what's there to suit your perspective, you are saying no to God. And so that means nothing else than when it comes to this matter of what his word says, who is Lord, where is truth, at the end of the day, what it means is salvation is at stake here. This is not a matter of Anything else but that, it boils right down to the very heart and soul of things, and that's why Judah's so bent out of shape, because he's concerned about the salvation of these people. If you say no to God, you say no to salvation. And your eternity hangs in the balance. It rests upon these two essentials. Number one, the purity and integrity of the gospel. If you twist the gospel you lose salvation, period. A gospel that says no one is righteous, no one is good, no one is seeking God, but God is seeking you. A gospel that says it is only by the sheer favor and grace of God in Christ that we can ever be accepted, that we can ever be made right with him. And I hope and pray that every person in here would come to the place where they see that and believe that and put their faith and trust in Christ. Every one of us in here is the prodigal son. 
Every one of us in here has squandered away the things God has given us. We've turned our backs to him. We've said, no, I don't, I don't want you. Give me my inheritance, but I don't want you anymore. And we've gone out and we've spent it all and we found ourselves at the, at the very bottom because we've realized that really what we needed wasn't our inheritance. We needed the father. Every one of us is the prodigal son. And that also means every one of us can come back to him. And you know what's beautiful about my favorite part of this story? My favorite part of the story is not that the son came back, but that when the son started to come back, he found the father running to him. The father, in the most undignified manner for a Jewish man, (laughs) ran in public to embrace his son, who had done nothing to earn the father's favor. Nothing to deserve the father's love. Nothing to deserve his forgiveness or his acceptance. It is freely offered and must be freely received. You and I are the prodigal son, and the father is welcoming us back to himself. But secondly, your salvation doesn't just hang on maintaining the purity and the integrity of the gospel, it also hangs, and this is just as important on this. Yes, God welcomes us back as we are, but we cannot continue living as we once did. And that's because the Savior is also the Lord. And he has a rightful claim to your life. And you and I must never be guilty of divorcing his blessings from his lordship. He has made his will for the church abundantly clear through his word, which is our only and supreme authority for all of life. And only those who listen to the words of Jesus and obey what he says are wise. In fact, Jesus himself said, they're like the one who builds his house upon solid rock. Remember that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the end of Matthew chapter 7? Though the rain comes in torrents, and the, like today, and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it will not collapse because it's built on bedrock. Christ's word is the bedrock of your faith and your life. And that's why the deceivers want to twist it. They want to get you right at the foundation. But those who hear the clear teachings of Christ and don't obey them are the fools like the person who builds his house upon sand. And that's every single person within the sound of my voice who builds their life on anything but Christ. You are a fool. And I was once a fool. And we were all once fools. It is foolish, it is folly to build your life on anything but Christ. It's like the man who builds his house upon sand and when the rain and the floods of life inevitably come and when the winds beat against the house of your life, it will collapse with a mighty crash. But Christ has built his church on the bedrock of his word and against it, the scriptures say, the gates of hell shall not prevail. So church, stand firm, defend the faith, and build your life upon the bedrock of Christ and his word. Let's pray. Give us courage, Lord, in the the remaining moments here together before we transition to a a time of fun and fellowship and food. Give us courage 
in this moment to respond as you are speaking to our hearts to respond. May this not be just another day where you tug at our hearts and we're exposed to truth and we just say no. Or maybe another time. Or I don't have time for that right now. Or that disrupts too many things in my life. Or I just don't, I just can't fully believe. Lord, may this be a day where we stop making the excuses and say yes to you. We may not have it all understood. We may not have it all worked out. We may not know what all the implications are going to be, but we know truth when we hear it because your spirit superintends the proclamation of your word. And your spirit is working right now in people's hearts and minds to open us up to your truth and empower us to believe it. Even if we just have the faith the size of a mustard seed, all that's enough to move mountains. So Lord, help us to respond as you want us to respond. If that means when we stand here in a moment, people come forward to this place of, these places of prayer and they kneel and they confess their sins to you. They confess their need for you. Maybe they need to ask for forgiveness for, yes, they've, they've accepted you as Savior, but they haven't surrendered to you as Lord. Whatever the transaction is that needs to take place, Lord, I pray that it happens in these moments to come. That it not just be another routine ending to an otherwise average church service. Lord, may this be a day of consequence for your people and the people that you are calling to be a part of your people. Lord, help us to know how to respond and give us direction and give us the courage to do it and the faith, I pray. In the name, the mighty name of our only Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.